Hi, friends. Welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. This is Kristen Carey hosting today, and I cannot wait to have this conversation with Dr. Julie Slattery. Julie, thank you so much for joining me on the Living Truth Podcast today. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. You guys, Dr. Julie Slattery is a clinical psychologist, and she is the she's an author, and I have her book right here in front of me. If you're watching the video, you can see me hold it up, but just in case you're listening audio only, her latest book is called God, Sex, and Your Marriage, and it's excellent. She is the co-founder of Authentic Intimacy, which is a ministry dedicated to reclaiming God's design for sexuality. Isn't that a huge need? And especially for our listeners, you guys, I know, feel the need for this kind of healing and this kind of message acutely. So Julie also hosts her own podcast called Java with Julie. We'll have links to get in touch with her in our show notes. Um, Julie, I'd love to ask you some questions specifically from this book and from just your expertise in this area. I love, by the way, how personal you get in your book. Like you, you get very vulnerable and personal, which is like so meaningful to me. So thank you for doing that. Mm, Well, thanks. I don't know how to to write without that. So yeah. So what you see is what you get. It certainly gets our attention when you're vulnerable with your humanity, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and your, and your own struggles. So can you just start by talking about why is faithfulness so foundational to sexual intimacy? As Christians, we know God calls us to fidelity. It's in our vows. Right. Right. But yeah. why is that so central? Yeah. If we think about what marriage is, it's a covenant relationship. And so a covenant is different than any other kind of relationship we have. It's a relationship based on character. And that's the kind of relationship that God has with us. And so he designed marriage to be like a mini version of the kind of covenant that he, that he has with us. And faithfulness sets the foundation. Like without faithfulness, you have nothing. You can't build off of anything. And there are all these great things that can come from married sexuality or come from marriage in general, but none of it matters if you can't trust each other. Uh, and so, you know, I really feel like most marriage books talk about faithfulness as an issue later in marriage, like you might have this problem instead of saying, no, like we all need to learn what faithfulness is. It's a problem in every marriage. It shows up differently in every marriage, but you know, at our heart level, we are just not born faithful people. It's something we need to commit to and learn over time. Mm, Yeah. So in your book, you talk about the fact that most married people might be sexually active, but not sexually intimate. Mm-hmm. And I think this is especially true for people who have sexual addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think, or can you explain the difference? Yeah. And and also, what can a couple do practically to move more towards intimacy? Now, let me preface this by saying, I realize many of the people listening right now are abstaining from sex because you're in a period of crisis and you don't even know if your marriage is going to make it. Maybe you want your marriage to make it, but you know that like sex is not safe for you right now and you will get no shaming from us whatsoever. So Mm -hmm. you might hear this topic and be like, ugh, I can't even go there, but but we are not going to go into anything about your marital duty That's not even, actually, that is going to be a question I'm going to talk to Dr. Julie here about, but 
it's not going to be a podcast episode where you're going to get any kind of expectation or demand that you have any kind of sexual intimacy with your spouse. Dr. Julie here knows our audience. She knows you guys have been through horrible trauma and crisis with infidelity. And so she knows that as she's answering these questions. So please, you guys, when you're listening, don't take any kind of guilt or shame. But back to the question, what does it mean when you say couples are sexually active, but not intimate? Well, you know, I think it goes right into what you were just saying, sort of the disclaimer. You can't build intimacy if you don't have faithfulness. And so, as you mentioned, a lot of our listeners are in the throes of betrayal and there there has not been faithfulness in the marriage. And so you can't build intimacy that you have to start by rebuilding faithfulness and rebuilding the concept of, can we trust each other? Can I trust your word? Will you be sexually faithful to me? Are you a safe person for me? And so a lot of the work in restoring a marriage, probably the first two or three years is just rebuilding that sense of trust and faithfulness. Um, But why do you build that sense of trust or faithfulness? You build it so that you can now begin to experience intimacy. Intimacy means I can be vulnerable. I can be seen for who I really am and embraced. So a lot of couples that have been through sexual addiction or infidelity, when they look back on their married life kind of before D-Day, they'll say, we never really were intimate. Like we had sex all the time, but I never felt like sex was more than just what our bodies were doing. And that we were supposed to have sex, so we did. Or my husband asked me for sex, so I gave it to him. But there was no sharing of the sexual journey of communicating what does sex mean for you? Um, How do you feel when you initiate sex and I'm not in the mood? Like, let's talk about that. Um, And so intimacy is sharing everything about the journey of sexuality, sharing our wounds, sharing our shame, sharing our desires, sharing our fears, Uh, sharing our delights. And so even in the act of sex, it's about becoming one, not just in what our body's doing, but not having separate fantasies in your mind. Um, And so, you know, again, I think a lot of listeners are going to resonate with, yeah, even though like we were having sex for 15 or 20 years, we never shared our sexual journeys. Like my husband had secrets he never told me about. I was resentful. I felt like I was an object. I felt used. That's not intimacy. And so I think even in healthy couples, there's a lot of sexual activity that never goes beyond that. It's a negotiated, how often are we going to have sex? What do you want today? Instead of this journey of, no, I want to know your heart. Like I I want even the, the trials and the frustration to usher in the invitation for a deeper level of sharing and vulnerability. That is so powerful. And I imagine some of you, you're listening to this right now and you're like, that sounds so wonderful. And I'm so deeply grieved that that's not what I've had. Mm -hmm. Um, So how, how, what do you think about the role of like taking a break from sex when a couple has been through um, the crisis of sexual betrayal? I have a lot of, of men with the unwanted sexual behavior that are like, Hey, how long is this going to take? Like, when's my wife going to be okay? And I just answered that question recently. And I was like, 
let's talk about 9-11. Like, well, how long is it going to take to rebuild those towers? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's not the same and it never will be. But it's beautiful. I haven't been to Ground Zero, but there's a memorial and it's beautiful and it's repurposed. And your marriage can be rebuilt, but it's it's mm. gone. What was is gone because it was built on lies. Yeah. And so there is a rebuilding process. But can you, from your perspective as a woman of faith and as a, a psychologist specializing in sexuality, what would you say about the role of taking a break from sex if a couple wants to, if the betrayed spouse wants to, because yeah. of feeling unsafe? Oh yeah. I mean, again, you weren't, you weren't really experiencing sexually in sexual intimacy. I mean, if, if you're having sex so that your husband can have a physical outlet while his brain is going to pornographic images, there's nothing healthy or biblical about that. And so what I tell couples and not only in the situation that you're describing, but also when there's been like sexual trauma in the past and sex is triggering. Sometimes you need to be, you need to stop being sexually active so you can start becoming sexually intimate. And the greatest intimacy in sex is sometimes built when you're not having sex because you're forced to communicate at a deeper level of what sex again means to you, where your heart has been broken, what you long for, what you desire. Um, Like there's, exercises that you do in sex therapy called sensate focus that is teaching your body how to touch each other intimately, but not leading to intercourse. And most couples who go through those exercises will say it was way more vulnerable and intimate than anything we ever experienced having sex together. And so I think what's become of most of our sex lives is we're doing this very physically intimate thing, but we're disconnected from our bodies. And we're just going through the motions for one reason or another. And so a break in having intercourse can actually be an invitation of what would it really look like for us to connect our sexual journeys? What would it really look like for us to communicate at a level where I could say there's no secrets? I know your heart. I see you. Uh, what would it even look like to have? touching each other's hands be exciting again and to feel closeness. Uh, And so there are a lot of couples that need to stop the routine of what they've been doing in order to really learn what intimacy is. And then when you reintroduce sex, it is a whole different level of intimacy and connection. Especially if you wait to introduce it till your spouse is, is being faithful to you. Oh yeah. (laughs) Mentally, mentally. And I mean, I know that sounds like a really low bar on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's a lot. I feel like a lot of, I'm just using the term women because a lot of my audience is the woman is the one who's been betrayed and the man has, has um, been unfaithful, but obviously the tables are turned frequently, very, very frequently. Mm -hmm. And so Pardon my um, pronouns, you guys. When you listen to this, you can flip it for whichever party has um, been the one with the unwanted sexual behavior. But if he um, is has been struggling with pornography or affairs, a lot of times the wife will feel obligated to have sex, mm-hmm. both because of the duty sex message and the the verses that people like to take out of context about your body belonging to your husband and right. 
whatnot, but also out of fear that if I don't, if I'm not sexual with him, he's going to go take his sexuality outside of the marriage. And that is so damaging. It really is really a fear-based sexual. Yeah. I mean, part of what we need to understand, and this is what I feel like has not been taught well, is that sex is the celebration and sealing of a covenant promise. And so when we read the Bible, we see all these covenants that God made with his people. And every time there's a covenant, there's a a symbol or ceremony that celebrates that covenant or marks that covenant. So um, in the New Testament, Christians have this symbol of communion, um, where to remember our covenant with Jesus. And Jesus used this language. He says, I'm ushering in a new covenant And I want you to do this practice, remembering my body and my my blood that was given for you. So it's, it's a remembrance that we're supposed to do often. And sex is that same way where you and your husband have made this covenant with each other. And sex is the physical way that you mark your covenant, that you celebrate and remember your covenant. Well, in infidelity, the covenant is broken. And so we don't celebrate a covenant that is broken. Um, we grieve the covenant that's broken and we pray and work to the possibility of it can be, we can re-covenant, like it can be renewed. Like you said, you know, 9-11, like those buildings are gone, um, but there's nothing yet to celebrate. We're, we're in the rebuilding stage. We're in the testing stage of, um, is God going to breathe life into something that was dead? Is my, is my husband truly repentant? Is there the possibility of us building a real covenant. Um, And so when you're engaging sexually before that foundation has been reestablished, you you really are lacking integrity because you're, you're doing something with your bodies that isn't true of your relationship. And so our physical expression has to be symbolic of what's happening within the covenant. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think even from a theological perspective, you know, when, when, people broke covenant with God, he called them out on it. He said, stop offering sacrifices. Stop giving me lip service. Your hearts are far from me and sickening. And the same is true for a husband who's saying, give me sex, even though my heart is far from you, it's sickening. Um, And so that has to be addressed and repaired and healed before now we can enter into, we do have a covenant that we need to be celebrating and remembering. It's so confusing for so many women because there's this attachment and this person that they thought their spouse was and their brains are like our brains. Cause I went through betrayal too. And that's part of why I do this ministry. It's like part of my brain remembers the covenant and remembers what I thought was true and what we had. And I, I, I know so many women who are conflicted about sex mm-hmm. after betrayal, like part of them wants to, it's like a reclaiming right. of the oneness that I thought we had, but yeah. then they end up feeling like shame yeah. afterwards. It's mm-hmm. a very confusing experience. Mm-hmm. It's very yeah. painful. And I think some of it is, like I said, there's something intuitively where you know, like this lacks integrity. So you're grasping at some kind of intimacy. And there's a part of you that says, if we can connect sexually, then at least we can have some connection. But then the shame and the the ickiness after is, 
like that was fake. Like, even if it felt very real in the moment, like our hearts are not one. Um, so I understand that conflict. And the other thing I would say is, and this is true, not just with betrayal and sexual trauma, it's true with every difficult situation that we're in, we can't see true North. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I remember going through a really serious trial in my life, um, probably about 10 or 12 years ago, and I couldn't get out of it. And I would just weep every day. I was just a mess. And I remember my husband saying to me, like, Julie, you're a psychologist. You talk to people about this stuff all the time. What would you tell yourself? Like if you came for counseling and I wanted to throw something at him because I'm like, I can't like I you can't think straight when it's your mess. It doesn't matter if you've written books on it or how smart you might be or how spiritual you might be like you are in the spin cycle. And so, you know, that is why you need godly counsel around you. Good counsel. You need other people to help you establish what's normal and what's healthy and what boundaries you should, you should stay with without that you are driven by the desires and the grief and the shame. And, uh, and one day you want this and the next day you want that. And none of it makes any sense. And that is so tricky because I think a lot of people go through this kind of a crisis and they immediately go to marriage counseling or they immediately go to their pastor. And unfortunately there is very little to no training yeah. about about porn addiction mm-hmm. and affairs and yeah. betrayal trauma. Yeah. In any seminary or counseling school, you have to seek additional training for those things mm-hmm. outside. And so we we think we're going to the right people helpers and we end up getting advice like recapture your husband yeah. by opening yourself up to him and mm-hmm. reclaim him in the bed. I've heard actual women get this kind of advice, which yeah. is conflicting. So that's what's so hard. You guys, when you're listening to this, it's like you're getting conflicting advice because there's not a lot of clear training and information about healthy sexuality um, from a, a biblical standpoint, but that doesn't just pull certain verses out mm-hmm. and slap them on a situation. So why do you think those verses in particular about like um, the, the marital duty sex verses in, in the New Testament, why are those so often misused? And what would you say to people about those? Well, I think people today are looking for um, tangible advice. And so when you read the Bible just at face level and look for tangible advice on sex, there's not a lot. Like there's a lot of don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. And then first Corinthians seven, one through five, which you're referencing is one of the only, this is what you should do unless you look at Proverbs and Song of Solomon. And so, um, I think, first of all, I, I want to say this carefully. I think, first of all, we're lazy theologically. Uh, we're not looking at what is what is the fuller story of sexuality and marriage underneath all this that helps us make sense of the practical teaching. And there has been very little work done, particularly within the Protestant church, on helping people understand God's heart for sexuality and God's heart for marriage. And whenever you teach rules or practices without that heart, 
something is going to get misunderstood and lost. Um, I think also it's it's an easy way to justify what we want. Mm. So, you know, if you're coming to marriage saying, I have all these sexual desires and drives and fantasies, and God, God wants me to have all those met, where can I find in the Bible that says that? That that passage is a very easy one to slap on that and say, see, like, you know, the Bible says that you're supposed to meet my needs. So get up and do it. You know, it doesn't matter if you're wounded or sick or tired or or disconnected. This is what the Bible says. Uh, And we can do that with anything. Like we can find a Bible verse that tells us to go out and make a a million dollars and spend it on ourselves. But that's not the narrative of scripture. Um, So when you look at the narrative of covenant and the narrative of sexuality, you see what a gross distortion it is to apply 1 Corinthians 7 that way. Mm. That is, that makes so much sense, Julie. What do you think the role of self-denial in a healthy sex life is? I think the role of self-denial is huge for both the single and married Christian. And we tend to emphasize self-denial for single Christians, but then have like, I grew up hearing this. If you get married, you can have guilt-free, shame-free, wonderful sex anytime you want it. You can have like an orgy that God, God now sanctifies. I mean, this is what people hear. Yeah. Um, And so when they run into the fact that sex can be very difficult in marriage, that I can have desires and longings that won't be met by my spouse, um, that this kind of sexual love is going to challenge me and challenge my love and my character. They don't know what to do with that. And so that's why they fall back on first Corinthians seven. And, you know, one of the things that I think we need to realize is if we go just a few chapters later in first Corinthians, we find first Corinthians 13, which most people are very familiar with, um, this great definition of love, you know, it's just, it's beautiful. Um, you know, that love is patient and kind, doesn't demand its own way. Mm-hmm. Why would Paul write that that's what love looks like and not apply it to the bedroom? Why just if, if a little earlier in his letter to the Corinthian church, would we think that he's saying, except for in your sex life, you don't have to be patient or kind or, um, you know, self-denying or sacrificial. Like it's so inconsistent. Um when we read even the whole of first Corinthians and everything that it says about love and sexuality and about our lives, um, you know, we're called to be people who love like Jesus loves. And, um, when we look at how Jesus loved, he laid his life down for us, not out of weakness. Like he wouldn't be manipulated by the Pharisees even said, you know, I lay my life down because I want to, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up. No one takes it from me. So this isn't a doormat doing whatever your spouse wants, but a mm-hmm. strong sense of, you know, I want to, I want to have the attitude of a great lover, of a servant, of somebody who's gracious, of somebody who's kind and patient. And, and so I think we need to do a whole lot of work on applying that those kinds of scriptures to our sex lives. And um, that leads me to this concept of sexual maturity which I Mm -hmm. want you to talk about, which I had never heard those two words together. But we often say that a sex addiction 
um, or somebody who's indulging in sexual behavior outside their covenant, it is a catastrophic failure to attain maturity. The fact mm-hmm. that you would, you know, go in that direction. Um, certainly there's times where it's rooted in, in your, your own sexual trauma and wounds and all of that. But the end result is a lack of maturity, not yeah. just in the sexual area, but in other areas as well, emotional and mm-hmm. whatnot. So um, I love how you say God is not only concerned with our sexual morality, mm-hmm. but our sexual maturity. Can you explain yeah. what that would look like in marriage? Yeah. Um, so I think in general, if you grew up in a church setting, you you, you believe maturity is following the rules. Like as long as I don't cheat, you know, like I'm good and we're good as a married couple. The goal is to not cheat on each other, which what a anemic perspective of yeah, what a low bar too. Yeah, it really is. Um, but you know, God's desire for every aspect of our life is that we become mature and grounded in love. We become more like him. And so this kind of dawned on me in my own marriage of 28 years no one showed us what maturity looked like sexually. Like how should our sexual relationship be different today than it was 28 years ago? Um, Other than we have wrinkles and like everybody paints the picture that it's going to get worse instead of, wow, it actually is getting better because we're becoming mature lovers. And, um, And even as your listeners, as you all are going through the process of recovery, here's something that I often see a couple will reestablish that that groundwork of faithfulness. And they'll even begin to engage in some intimacy and deep sharing, but they can't enjoy sex because pleasure has always meant destruction. And so there are a lot of, yeah. yeah, there are a lot of men who will shut down pleasure and they don't want sex because they're afraid of it. And I would say like the fullness of maturity is being able to reframe pleasure and enter into it in a way that is intoxicating and delighting and fun and playful, but it's it's within the framework of this faithfulness and love and covenant and intimacy. So it's not all about the pleasure, but the pleasure is part of it. Um, and so again, I think there are a lot of organizations that help men get off pornography, but they never give them the vision of how do we re-engage with our sexuality in a pure and playful and passionate way. So what are your suggestions for that, for a person who has had a history of unwanted sexual behavior? Well, I think, you know, you've already talked a little bit about it. We misunderstand the role of pleasure and we misunderstand the role of sex. And so we, even when we look neurologically at how we use sexual pleasure, often is we've learned to use it as a form of self-medication. So um, so a lot of people who have struggled with unwanted sexual desire are kind of overriding their neurology to hit on that dopamine and adrenaline over and over and over again. Why? Because they don't know how to deal with depression. They don't know how to deal with sadness. They don't know how to deal with disappointment. They lack intimacy. They have no connections. And so sex is the only place they can go to feel at peace or to feel alive. If you're still working with that paradigm and you just bring it into marriage, then pleasure is still going to be misused. Yeah. But this is why recovery takes so long. 
once you get to understand how you've been misusing sexual pleasure and you learn how to meet those underlying needs in the way they were meant to be met, now we can reintroduce sexual pleasure for the purpose that it has been given, that we're celebrating this love that we have. And I don't need pleasure to survive, but I receive it as a gift. I enjoy it. We work on it. Um, and so it, it it serves a completely different purpose. And that's why what you mentioned, sometimes that sexual fast is so key, even to neurologically rewire our sexual response. So it's not seeking to escape something. It's actually seeking to celebrate something. Wow. That is really powerful. And I completely agree, agree with everything you say. If a couple comes to you and says, hey, I think we need a break so that we can rewire this. What is your recommendation for length of time? Uh, You know, usually the recommendation is going to be somewhere between one and three months, but it really depends on why. So so most marriage experts would say that it takes somewhere between two and four years to recover from infidelity. Yep. So in that case, you know, it could be a year, it could be two years. Um, of really reestablishing that that faithfulness and working through the woundedness and why it happened in the first place. So, um, so it depends on why you're taking the fast. I have a dear friend who's one of the leaders in of one of my groups, um, and she and her husband were separated for four years, working mm-hmm. on their recoveries. Um, him from unwanted sexual behavior, her working on her healing from betrayal, and when they got back together, oh my gosh, they've been back together for several years now and their marriage Mm. is like better than it ever was before. And I just look at her example of endurance Mm -hmm. and she built a whole life for herself. Like she went back to school. I mean, she, she didn't just sit there like waiting, you know, she like just lived her life and, and she did, she had to do a lot of grieving and a lot Mm. of um, healing but um, it is incredible for some couples, it's just patience and a lot of hard work individually is, is going to bring some restoration, a lot of repair work. But there are other people who choose to stay in that pigsty or they are stuck in that pigsty of their mm-hmm. unwanted sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. And so what would you say to our listeners who are just devastated and heartbroken because they are willing to do the work to rebuild a marriage, but their spouse um, is unwilling to truly mm-hmm. change and 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 truly mature and and stop. Maybe they even have stopped the unwanted sexual behavior, but they're not willing to emotionally and relationally mature to the point where trust can be rebuilt. And yeah. these people are sitting there, you know, they're sexual beings, right? They have this, all this trauma from the betrayal and they're not married. So there's no outlet. <laughs> mm-hmm. What do you say for people like that? Yeah. Um, so a couple things. First of all, if you're married to somebody who refuses to deal with patterns of infidelity or sexual addiction um, and you've given that time, you know, the scripture says that Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of heart. And um, what we're talking about is a hardness of heart for whatever reason, a refusal, a stubbornness. And so 
although it is never ideal, sometimes divorce is is the only option you have. Um, and again, that is through time, it's through prayer, it's through through spiritual counsel. Um, but there are some cases, unfortunately, where somebody continues to be unfaithful and they refuse to be repentant. They refuse to get help. They refuse to change. And God himself does that with us. When we refuse to return to him, uh, it breaks his heart, but He there's no covenant. There's no relationship. Um, and so, unfortunately, that is the case for a lot of situations. If somebody is saying, I'm committed to faithfulness, I'm committed to that, at least that level of work, but maybe they're not at the stage of emotional maturity or spiritual maturity where you wish they would be, you know, my counsel would be to wait. And like you said, waiting isn't passive. Waiting is also very active of, okay, like I still need to have friends. I still need to uh, have a thriving life. I'm not going to find a lot of that in my marriage, but I'm staying committed to my marriage. But I also realize I need a rich life that I need to be investing in and wait and see what the Lord does, because we are all on different journeys of maturity and we're going to outpace each other. And so there are situations where a woman can be five or 10 years ahead of her husband, but he's still moving mm -hmm. and you don't know what God is going to do. And I've seen, I've seen him do big things if we just continue to actively wait um, and there, at the same time, there is a time where I, I know a lot of our listeners, and this was the case for my situation where like actual infidelity happened repeatedly. Yeah, that's and so that that's not what Julie's talking about. No, here. that's where the first wait situation. And wait and wait. No, it's no. like when when the infidelity is is on repeat, the covenant mm -hmm. is broken and it's broken and it's yep. broken. Yep. And that is a different situation altogether. However, right. there are times where you're just not sure mm -hmm. and you think you're seeing good things, but you're not ready quite to reintegrate in a marriage. And that is when it's a great idea to just maybe you don't have your answer yet. And that's why you're conflicted and confused, right? Right. Like I said, that first situation is where there's not a commitment to faithfulness and maybe there's tears and repentance, but six months later, you're right in the same place. That's repeated infidelity. That's yeah. the hardness of heart. But mm -hmm. what I'm talking about is, you know, I, I know a lot of married couples where the woman is like, man, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to build intimacy. Like I want my husband to be engaging with me spiritually. I want him to talk more, but he's not there. And that's a different situation where we're patient um, we're working on our own lives uh, while we're staying committed and waiting for the Lord. So those are two different situations. Right. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of what do we do with our needs sexually or otherwise, you know, again, a lot of my work is even with single people. What do they do with their sexual desires? And, you know, I think what we need to realize is that our deepest desire is not for sex, it's for intimacy. Uh, you can live without sex. You might have some nights where it's more difficult than others, and that's okay. But you can't live without intimacy. Uh, why is it that, you know, women, before they get married, like, they want sex all the time. But as soon as they get married, a lot of women, like, they're like, where did my sex drive go? 
because ultimately what they were after was intimate connection. And so, you know, I really counsel people in lonely marriages as well as singles that what you're really longing for is intimate connection. And that's not always sexual. Uh, You're longing to be in community with people that see you and who care about you and are committed to you. Um, You're longing to be able to be fully a woman, to nurture and to um, be connected. And so, you know, a lot of our, a lot of those longings are really meant to be met outside of the bedroom. But in our society, we're so isolated that we channel every longing for intimacy into sex. And then when sex is gone, we don't know what to do. But I think it's a real challenge for us to say, you know, what does it look like for me to build intimacy, Um, to have the kind of friendships where I feel seen, I feel heard, I feel known, even physical touch. You know, we're so weird about physical touch in the Western world. We need physical touch. Um, We need hugs. We need friends. Um, You know, we need to be loved. So, you know, I think we can have, we can have kind of isolated lives and then wonder why we're so lonely. Um, And there's a lot of ways that we can grow and develop those kinds of intimate connections that really help us thrive. Thank you so much, Dr. Julie. This is all so helpful. You guys, uh, as I said, I'll I'll put some notes in our show notes about um, Dr. Julie's website so you can find her. And I hope this episode has been helpful to you. If it has, would you guys take a minute to rate or review this podcast? That helps more people find us. And until the next episode, I am holding out hope for you.